Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. Welcome back. I took the week off as I had a, a Blue Claws game to cover on Wednesday night. Very grateful that they have moved me around and having worked in a couple of new positions to become sort of a jack-of-all-trades. They do a great job of really trying to make you a more complete employee if if you really put in the effort, and I believe I have, so I'm very grateful to them. But it is interesting, though, that you know, I, I've realized that I would like to do the podcast more often. I'd like to get it back to doing it, really doing it every week. And that is in part because I would like to finally monetize the podcast. And I realize that the the listenership has to be a bit higher in order for that to be possible. But, you know, initially I said when I started this podcast in November of 2020 that I was going to... I was not going to monetize it because I thought, you know, this is just for me. This is just to get my thoughts out there. And this is also, and I'm also a rather proud person. I, I think in terms of, pro, I, I'm not really one for promoting myself much. And that's not really something you can do in this business when you're trying to advance your, in this business in particular, where you're trying to advance yourself. And so, I mean, I have made contacts and reached out with several people, and of course, I'd like to go further in my career, but, you know, there's also a point where even as as much as I enjoy my, uh, what I do for a living, you know, you can only do so much at this level, and even monetizing the podcast could probably only do so much, but I feel like I deserve a little more money, frankly, and I think I, I think I put a good effort into this podcast, but I also know that I can do more. And so I might try to we're hopefully going to try to, to tinker with a couple of things here and, and see what works. And so we will try to figure it out. But I really hope that you keep listening, that you encourage others to listen. I re- really hope you in and I, you know, it's not not like a charity thing. I hope you actually enjoy the podcast and you actually want to tell friends, family, etc., with common interests to listen. And so I, I think this is a, I think this, at least for, for a sports podcast, is fairly far-reaching in terms of scope, and I think it's interesting. But, you know, I, I really appreciate you if you have kind of stuck around from the beginning or if you've come along the way and, and listened to this podcast, I'm very appreciative that anyone really will, will listen to it. But uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, greed is supposed to be a sin, but I also want to kind of prove my worth. It's it, a lot of times it's not about money, but it's about what the money says about what you have Done because again, I'm not saying that I'm going to become wealthy off this podcast necessarily uh, alone, let alone with you know combining it with with a few other things. But I think it's time. I, I just think it's time, and so hopefully we can get that done soon, and we can actually monetize the podcast. But moving on here, we have a very uh, we have so much to discuss this week. First and foremost, you know why not? I'll discuss hockey. We'll talk about. The brand new Hockey Hall of Fame class for 2023, a very goaltender heavy, I I think relatively speaking, a goaltender heavy class, also a class of people who are just long overdue to get in, although it is, you can definitely argue that this class is headlined by the first ballot Hall of Famer, that is Henrik Lundqvist. In addition, Tom Barrasso, Mike Vernon, Pierre Turgeon, another one who's really long-awaited, Caroline Ouellette, Ken Hitchcock, and late Pierre Lacroix will all be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame this year in 2023. I believe that will be in November. I was talking to one of my co-workers with the Blue Claws. I think he said he was going up there 
particular he's a Ranger fan. I think he said he's particularly going up there for Lundquist, and I was kind of surprised. I didn't even realize it's going to be, I think they said, a Monday night, which just seems kind of nuts to me. I mean, they, people talk about, you know, the NHL and marketing, but, uh, you know, I don't quite know. To be fair, I think the NBA, I think they also do on a weeknight, but, uh, or rather the, the Basketball Hall of Fame, not the, it's not NBA-specific, but, I don't know, just, uh, just very funny to me. There's some one thing I noted. But as we just read off just the bios of these people, I think I think first and foremost it has to be Lundquist because he's the only one of all these people who's a first ballot Hall of Famer. He is sixth all time with 459 wins by a goaltender. That's the most by any European goaltender. But really, it's not just that; it's the most by any goaltender born outside from outside Canada. And on top of that, that's that's counting. You know, that, that's not counting, of course, Northern Canada, Atlantic Canada, or most of, or Western Canada, or most of the prairies. That's the most by any goaltender from outside Quebec, Ontario, or Manitoba. So I think, I believe it's Marty Brodeur, Patrick Waugh, and I forget the order, but I know it's Ed Belfort, Curtis Joseph, and Marc-Andre Fleury are the guys who were in front of him, and all of those guys played more years than he did. That's another thing to note. This is crazy. Well, I believe it's skewed for goaltenders, but if you don't, if you don't know what point shares are, point shares are kind of like the NHL equivalent or the hockey equivalent of WAR, wins above replacement in baseball, and it's not entirely accurate. It does not mean hey, you could be number one in WAR or number one in point shares. And or, or let's say let's say you're the, okay that's not entirely fair because Babe Ruth's first in WAR and Wayne Gretzky's first in point shares, but you could be second in WAR or second in point point shares. You might not necessarily be the second best player. It might not entirely correspond, but it is interesting to know. And even though I believe it might be skewed for goaltenders, Henrik Lundqvist is top twenty all time in point shares. So that is one thing to know. I believe he's at least top seven among goaltenders, something like that. But what I did notice that is really interesting, really interesting, is that you know Hockey Reference doesn't do this for you. They don't calculate point shares per season. But I calculated it for the top 250 players in terms of point shares all time, and the and the funny thing is, if you look at it, number one player all time, believe it or not, is Connor McDavid with 12.57 point shares per season. It's not Wayne Gretzky. Now, to be fair, Connor McDavid is only eight seasons into his career. But McDavid is first. Bobby Orr, who, again, was at a little bit of a, you know, played a, did not play as long as you might expect. That's, but that, that just shows the volume of what he did in such a time. I think he played about 12 seasons. His career point shares are about 12.55. McDavid, 12.57. Wayne Gretzky, 20-year career, he's the best, he's undoubted, 12.53. Henrik Lundqvist is fourth. This is really surprising. Henrik Lundqvist is fourth with 11.55. And, again, it's skewed for a goaltender, and I wouldn't even argue he is the best goaltender. I wouldn't argue he is the second-best goaltender. Longevity has a lot to do with it. That's, you know, part of why part of why Gordie Howe is, you know, the best Player besides Wayne Gretzky is longevity. Played 26 years, not to mention all the years he played in the WHA. Really, he's a guy who played about. Really, he's a guy who played about 34, 35 years. But uh, yeah, it's true. Henrik Lundqvist is fourth in point shares per season. It's absolutely remarkable. It's ahead of some of the great players of his era that you could say are better. Or it's different when you're a goaltender against a forward. It's ahead of you know Sidney Crosby, Alexander Ovechkin, Patrick Kane, Jonathan Taze, Patrice Bergeron, the great players of his era. Uh, Nicholas Backstrom as well is, is another one to throw in there. Evgeny Malkin. Se- several guys to put on that list. But that's uh, ahead of uh, Gordy Hat or even the, some of the best goaltenders. Martin Brodeur, Patrick Waugh, who I would argue are better. Dominic Hasek, who, who you can make an argument is better. I would, in my opinion, Lundquist is a top three, and by that I mean third, third, third at worst, probably the fourth 
best goaltender, I think, of all time. I would. I said this when his number was retired. When he retired, I, I, I said that he is on the Mount Rushmore of goaltenders, if not a top three, and I believe that's absolutely true. But then you look at some of the stats, it's remarkable, especially for a guy who did not win the Stanley Cup. He might go down as, again, it's different with a goaltender, but you can very well argue that he is the best, probably the best goaltender, maybe the best player not to win the Stanley Cup. Tied for the most games, seven wins all time. That's six only, and he's the only one to win six in a row, by the way. Career in game sevens. Patrick Waugh has some good numbers in game sevens. Martin Brodeur has great numbers in game sevens, a sub two goals against. Henrik Lundqvist, probably the best game seven goaltender ever, and, and you know Justin Williams, probably the best game seven player, but Lundqvist, you can put high on that list. Six and two, a 1.11 goals against, a 961 save percentage, and one shutout. All-time in Game 7s. Never allowed more than two goals in a seventh game. Most wins ever by a goaltender to play only for one franchise. Now, to be fair, that's because Martin Brodeur, of course, played the very end of his career, that kind of one year in St. Louis that a lot of Devil fans probably want to forget. But he is he has the most wins by a goaltender to only play for one franchise, albeit he did have that... He, he had signed with Washington after his he was released and he had the heart surgery, but that never came to fruition. Most wins by a goaltender to play for only one franchise. Second most wins with a single team. Of course, uh, Brodeur in front. Believe it or not, I, again, this, this is also skewed a bit because he played kind of in the back half of Brodeur's career, although Brodeur, you can argue, might have even been better in that stretch because he more so won the Vezina kind of at the end of the Devils' best run when they won the Stanley Cup in 03 and then into the era right before the lockout and then right after the lockout, those two, three years. Had a winning record against Martin Brodeur for his career. Did not have a winning playoff record. Was 1-2 and two in terms of series, but did have a winning record overall. Franchise leader for the New York Rangers in wins, shutouts, and points shares. Broke the wins and shutouts record, I think, within a couple of days of each other, within about 10 seasons, which is something else to say when you consider you've, there's a history of great goaltending. Ed Jockman, a Hockey Hall of Famer. Mike Richter, who's a U.S. Hockey Hall of Famer, and you could argue should be in the uh, in the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. A number of great goaltenders there. Uh, also, of course, led the Rangers to an Eastern Conference title in 2014, and Came within perhaps a couple of questionable calls of hoisting the cup that year. Only goaltender with seven consecutive 30-plus win seasons to begin his career. It might have been eight or nine or maybe even ten. I can't remember if he won 30 the year he got hurt and the Rangers won the President's Trophy when Cam Talbot came in. But the 2012-2013 season was shortened due to a lockout, and I think he still had something like 24 wins or something to that extent in about a 48-game season. And so he probably would have won eight or nine in a row. Made the playoffs 11 of his first 12 years. He was the team MVP nine times in his 15 seasons. And one more really telling stat, only Martin Brodeur has both more wins and a lower, lower goals against than Henrik Lundqvist, who actually has a better goals against than Patrick Waugh. Again, Waugh played in a different... Now, to be fair, Patrick Waugh really played in a, a different era but it's a better goals against than Waugh, than Fleury, than Belfour, and then Joseph. And in addition, Lundqvist actually has a better save percentage for his career than Martin Brodeur. Brodeur did play probably with a stronger team in front of him, but I would still argue he was the better goaltender. But there are a few uh, a few knocks, and so uh, well-earned for Henrik Lundqvist. Another one who really earned it and waited far too long, Tom Barrasso, who... Won the Stanley Cup with the Pittsburgh Penguins in 1991 and 1992, but was very much overshadowed by an amazing team in front of him, led by Mario Lemieux, who is one of the most skilled players ever. Maybe the, if not for injuries, maybe the one guy who mastered the combination of size and skill more than any other player in history. Yaramir Yager, who is probably the closest thing we'd have to Gordie Howe in the last 30 or 35 years, in terms of longevity, but also a guy with incredible skill who played all over the place. And I would argue probably still could play in the NHL today. Ron Francis, a top five scorer all time, and probably the best player in the history of the 
Whalers slash Hurricanes organization, a guy who was may, at times maybe even more crucial to the Penguins' success in the postseason, Lemieux and Yager. Brian Trottier, who was, to be fair, later on in his career, but a guy who is at least a top two Islander all-time, if not number one. Larry Murphy, an incredible just power defenseman who could play at both ends and would also be outstanding in Detroit. And then you have Scotty Bowman, who was the greatest head coach of all time, who was the head coach for the second Penguins Cup-winning team after Badger Bob Johnson sadly passed due to cancer. Then you also look at guys like guys like Kevin Stevens and and Ulf Samuelson, uh, a number of phenomenal players. I, I don't know if they overlap, but Alexei Kovalev came in later on in that whole era when uh, with Alexei Kovalev and, and and Martin Straka, number of fantastic teams. But Tom Barrasso was, I, I think, to a lesser extent, kind of what Grant Fuhrer was to the Edmonton Oilers, where he played behind you know Gretzky and Messier, Curry, Coffee. Anderson, Lowe, uh, just this insanely talented team, but a very offensive-minded team. And Grant Fuhrer and Tom Barrasso, the guys just did their jobs. Now, of course, Barrasso, because of that, his numbers could be better. Uh, 3.24 goals against for his career and an 892 save percentage. That's not incredible, but... He played to the score and made crucial saves for an incredibly skilled and offensive-minded team. Uh, and even before that, even before that, he had carved out a very successful, I think, five years for himself in Buffalo, where the only place where he ever won the Vezina Trophy. He won 369 games for his career over 20 seasons, won 43 games in the 92-93 season for Pittsburgh when they, I believe, won the President's Trophy and were unceremoniously knocked out by the Islanders in the second round in seven games, won the Calder as Rookie of the Year and the Vezina Trophy in the same year, in 1984, and was a three-time All-Star. Great goaltender in Buffalo, great goaltender in, in Pittsburgh. He is, until Marc-Andre Fleury showed up, he was probably the best goaltender in the history of the organization, and well-deserved a long wait for Tom Barrasso, who I think has been waiting something like well over a decade, I'm pretty sure. Another guy who waited too long, Mike Vernon. Guy who played 18 years, finished, again, his stats could be better. They're, they're a little better than Barrasso, at least in terms of goals against, 2.98. Although Barrasso, you maybe can adjust for playing in a perhaps more offensive era at the back end of that, you know, Gretzky-Messier, and then into early Lemieux-Yager, that or early to mid Lemieux Yager, where just incredibly off, incredibly offensive numbers, but 2.98 goals against 889, an 889 save percentage for his career for Mike Vernon, but five time All Star, uh, one more games than Barrasso, 385 in fewer seasons, also a two time Stanley Cup champion, and this is perhaps more important. He did it with two different teams. He won with the Calgary Flames in 1989 and then one with the Red Wings in 1997, ending, a lot of people might forget, the, the Red Wings, despite having more Stanley Cup titles than any team in American history with 11, and being just two behind the Leafs for second, winning four titles in a span of, what, 12 years, dominant in the late 90s, early 2000s, into the late 2000s. The Red Wings were not far behind where the Rangers were and where the Maple Leafs are now, the Red Wings had not won the Stanley Cup in 43 years before 1997, and Mike Vernon won the Conn Smythe Trophy in 1997. Not Steve Eiserman, he would win the next year, who, who is probably the, the best player not named Gordie Howe in the history of that organization, but he won it before Eiserman did, he won it before, before Nick Lidstrom did, and then later on it was Henrik Zetterberg. But you also look at some even better um, players who are even more important to the organization. Guys like Brendan Shanahan, who never won it. Guys like, you know, great defensive forwards like Chris Draper and Kirk Maltby. Look at great, uh, great rotation of goaltenders and Dominic Hoshik, who's an all-time, who is Mount Rushmore goaltenders, established more, established himself more in Buffalo, but point still stands. Won the Cup for the first time and the second time in Detroit. Chris Osgood, who I think should be in the Hall of Fame, and I think he, I think his time is coming. But Mike Vernon established himself 
first before anyone else really did in the postseason. And uh, also won the Jennings Trophy along with Osgood in 1996, allowing the fewest goals in the league. In addition, helped lead the Flames to the final in 1986. Uh, played in four Stanley Cup finals for his career. Was also in Detroit when they went to the finals and were swept by the Devils in 1995. Played 12 years in Calgary. Was great in the 89 playoffs for Calgary when they won the Cup for the first time. But in the 97 playoffs, 16-4, and a 1.76 goals against. And that's really tough to differentiate, differentiate yourself on that team where you have Hall of Famers in Iserman, Shanahan, Lidstrom. Hasha came in later on. Osgood should be in the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. And then you have these great role players in, in Maltby, in Draper, Darren McCarty. That's one of the deepest teams, I think, maybe the deepest team in my lifetime, the Detroit Red Wings of the late 90s. But just a well-earned for, for Mike Vernon and, and beloved be, between those two organizations. Long time coming for him as well. And maybe the definition of long time coming, maybe the longest wait, relatively speaking, within this whole Hall of Fame class, Pierre Turgeon. A guy who, for his career, is more than a point-per-game guy. Over 1,300 points, over 500 goals. Had the most points of any eligible player not to have been inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame yet, despite retiring in 2007. He was a four-time All-Star, and he was a Lady Bing winner, by the way. But what, what kept him out of the Hall of Fame, and I'm not saying it's right, but I understand it, I, I guess... He didn't have the honors. He never won the Stanley Cup, never played in a Cup final. Or he didn't have, never won a, the Hart Trophy. And Lady Bing was only was the only major trophy he ever won. But also didn't really have the longevity with one team that most Hall of Famers have. Most Hall of Famers either have longevity with one team, or they have, and or, some sort of honor, Stanley Cup title, a Hart Trophy win, a Vezina, a Norris, a Selkie, something to that extent, you know, and, but, so he, because of that, he was passed over for far too long. You look at his career, actually, the most seasons he played with a single team was five. He played parts of five seasons in Buffalo, parts of five seasons in St. Louis. Parts of four years with the Islanders, parts of uh, three with Montreal and each with Montreal and Dallas, and two in Colorado. And though I believe a couple of those, yeah, two or three of those teams won the cup during his career, he was never there for it. Just kind of the worst timing. For his career, 1,294 games, 515 goals, which I feel like should be an automatic. 812 assists, 1,327 points. Now, it's also a guy who didn't have a lot of, a ton of outstanding years, very consistent, maybe had one or two really high years. I think he had only 200 plus year, uh, 100 plus point seasons. But his peak. Definitely, when he had 132 points and over 50 goals in the 92-93 season with the Islanders, when he led them to a stunning upset of the Penguins in the second round, as I mentioned earlier with Barrasso, scored a goal against the Washington Capitals in the first round that pretty much ended the series, and of course he was unceremoniously just dirtily taken out of the play by Dale Hunter. And Hunter received, I think, maybe the second longest suspension in history. It's one of the longest. Not to mention, you know, even though he never played in a cup final, good playoff performer. In his two career conference final runs with the Islanders in 93 and the Blues in 01, finished in 26 combined games with 28 points. Phenomenal player. And really a, a long time coming. As for Caroline Ouellette, I did not know much of her career, but what I have learned is remarkable, and she's definitely deserving. Two-time Canadian Women's Hockey League Most Valuable Player, 
won the Angela James Bowl as the league's top scorer in 2011. Now, the, the seasons are shorter, and the Canadian Women's Hockey League did fold shortly before the pandemic. This was in 2019. But she was one of, if not the best players in the history of the league, from what I can tell. Played 10 years combined in the CWHL and the WWHL. 314 points in just 179 games over a 10-season career. Four-time Olympic gold medalist. Four-time Clarkson Cup champion. That is the, the That was the CWHL's championship. She was also the leading playoff scorer in 2009. She is also top 10 in career NCAA scoring after a remarkable career at Minnesota Duluth. She led the country in assists per game and points per game in the 0304 campaign after winning tournament MVP in 2003. And so just an outstanding career. I mean, you can only imagine again 179 games is a small is a small sample size at least by compared to the NHL. But when you finish with more than a point and a half a game over a 10-year career, that's outstanding, and she's well-deserving. One of the best ever to play the sport, at, at the very least, on the women's side. It's difficult to compare, but a phenomenal player, and it's good to see that, that she will get even more recognition. She, <clears throat> recognition. She's also a member of the Order of Canada, by the way, which is essentially the Canadian equivalent of knighthood. So, I mean, that by, that by itself should tell you something. Ken Hitchcock, fourth all-time with 849 wins, Stanley Cup champion, coached the Dallas Stars for eight seasons over two stints, led the team to the Cup title in 99, took them to the final in 2000, five consecutive division titles with the organization, also coached the Flyers, the Blues, the Blue Jackets, and the Oilers at the end of his career. Coached both the Flyers and the Blues to conference finals appearances, reached the playoffs 14 times over 22 seasons, won eight division titles, reached the conference finals five times, won 16 playoff series, and finished with 11 100-point seasons and three 50-win seasons. Especially remarkable, he's probably the best coach in the history of the Stars. Especially remarkable to distinguish that team, which is a very good team, led by Mike Modano, Ed Belfour, Joe Neuendijk, a number of fine just Hall of Fame players. But to have that team emerge when Detroit and Colorado were the two most dominant teams of the era, and for Dallas to even win once, Truly remarkable. And then push a, another dynasty in the New Jersey Devils to six games in the Stanley Cup Final in 2000 and defend their title so valiantly. Remarkable coach. Pierre Lacroix, I did not know much of his career either, but although he sadly passed away due to COVID complications in December of 2020, he certainly left his mark on this earth, won two Stanley Cup titles, as the general manager of the Colorado Avalanche, was born in Montreal, actually was originally started as the, the GM for the organization when they were still the Quebec Nordiques, and took over in their final season in, 1990, in 1994. They actually finished with the best record in the Eastern Conference that year, but were upset by the Rangers in the first round. Sadly, the organization moved, of course, became the Colorado Avalanche, won the Stanley Cup in their first year there, and he made some significant moves. He traded for Patrick Waugh in the middle of that first season in Colorado. And, of course, Waugh would make his mark, further make his mark in Colorado, winning the Stanley Cup twice and winning the Conn Smythe Trophy in 2001, becoming, still to this day, not the only goaltender, but the only player to win the Conn Smythe Trophy three times. Also, made moves for Ray Bork near the end of his career, where he still played at a pretty high level and helped deliver him a Stan the Stanley Cup for the first time. 
Also brought in Rob Blake, another huge Hall of Fame move. And won the Stanley Cup twice for his career. Lacroix did in 1996 and 2001. And if not going up against Colorado, or rather, uh, Detroit in particular, would have been uh, even stronger, far stronger. Served as the, the organization's GM for 12 years through 2006. Also served as team president for several years and worked in, a, worked in an advisory role for the club later on. He was not that well on in years. I think he was into his early 70s, perhaps, at the time of his passing. But, of course, COVID was just a, and, and really will forever be when you consider when it comes around during the holidays, kind of the way that the, the flu does now really took a lot, took a lot away from us, but lovely to see that he will be honored by the Hockey Hall of Fame. There are a few moves to discuss in the NHL actually on the ice, or, or technically off the ice, but in terms of active players. So first off, the Flyers traded Kevin Hayes to the Blues for a sixth-round pick. The Blues will cover about half his contract. Keith Jones and Patrick Sharp... I like this move for them because even though they don't get much, they're clearing house early. They really need a total rebuild for this team. The Avalanche trade Alex Newhook to Montreal in exchange for a first-rounder, a second-rounder, and Johnny Fairbrother. Big move there for Montreal to get a further a, a top-line guy. But the Avalanche, interesting that they will get... I mean, they'll free up cap space for sure, which is something they need. Something that any team needs after winning the Cup. But do get picks. And so it gives them a lot of flexibility. The Sharks acquire Mackenzie Blackwood from the Devils for a sixth round pick. He can become a free agent on July 1st. But this was a... You know, I liked Blackwood for the Devils before this past season. Obviously, Akira Schmid is the guy going forward. Of course, they had signed Vitek Vanacek as well. But... Blackwood can be a good guy for a, a rebuilding Sharks team that will have to rely more. Again, we'll have to continue to rely on Eric Carlson. We'll talk about him in a bit. Evgeny Dadanov re-signs with the Stars at a two-year, $4.5 million deal. Finished with 33 points and 73 com games uh, combined between the Dallas Stars and the Montreal Canadiens last year after being traded about midway into the season. Also finished with 10 points in 16 playoff games for Dallas as they reached the conference final against Vegas and came within two wins of reaching the Stanley Cup final. It is a veteran signing that the Stars really need, a guy at age 34 that can continue to buy, provide an excellent presence for them. And a presence that, if you're a Stars fan, you really hope they can find with even, the, even their captain, just making mistakes, making significant mistakes, getting suspended in the playoffs, and then underperforming, coming back for Game 6. Boston Bruins trade Taylor Hall and Nick Foligno to Chicago for Ian Mitchell and Alec Regula. It's an interesting trade and may indicate things to come for the Bruins regarding Bergeron and Krejci because these are two veteran guys that they have traded. Now, to be fair, these are two guys who have not been with the organization for a long time. They are not career Bruins, but it might indicate a trend. Felino, meanwhile, signs a one-year, $4 million deal with the Blackhawks. The Devils further established themselves as a, cup, as a cup contender with multiple moves this week. For one, they acquired Tyler Toffoli from the Flames for Yegor Sharangovich, a fan favorite, but a, a guy who is not as good as Tyler Toffoli and does not have the experience that he does or the physicality. Sharon Govich and a third rounder going to Calgary. Not a bad deal for them. Toffoli is a guy who didn't really work out in Calgary and wasn't really likely to stay there that long. The Devils also lock up Timo Meyer to an eight-year deal worth over $8 million a year. Solid pure goal scorer, really gets to the net and maybe was, you know, despite not performing that well was, at least in the first round, was maybe the most crucial player besides Akira Schmidt, actually, in the first round, turned that Rangers series on its head when he 
lay atop Igor Shosturkin and uh, drew a penalty that would produce the only regulation goal in the Devils' first playoff victory of the year. They came back from now two games to none to beat the Rangers. And without Timo Meyer, that perhaps does not happen. A huge investment for them, and that really continues to, to lock them up. The Pittsburgh Penguins make an in- interesting deal. Not a terrible trade. They give up a third rounder for Riley Smith, a guy who's made your name for himself in Boston, and of course now won the Stanley Cup in Vegas. Good role player, good goal scorer, and uh, not a bad two-way player as they try to just extend that window somehow for Pittsburgh and try to make one last run with the Crosby, Malkin, Latang grouping. Talking about the awards, first off, let's go with Eric Carlson, who won the Norris Trophy for the third time after finishing with over 100 points this season, only the sixth defenseman, only the sixth different defenseman ever to do so, and the first since Brian Leach 31 years ago won the Norris Trophy in 2012 and 2015 with the Senators, becomes only the second player to go eight or more years between wins. The other one is Paul Coffey, who is second all-time in goals among defensemen, one of the great D-men ever, one of the great offensive D-men ever. And the fact that Carlson could have his best year in a Sharks uniform when, when the Sharks did not perform whatsoever. Just, a, 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 just The team was rough this year, and he's a guy who very well could have been maybe even a finalist. I, I'm not sure. Like he, very even could, he could have gotten some MVP votes, perhaps. Speaking of which, Connor McDavid, named the Hart Trophy winner for the third time, also wins the Ted Lindsay Award as the player-voted MVP for the fourth time. He's only the third player ever to win the Ted Lindsay Award four or more times. The other two, Mario Lemieux won it four times. Wayne Gretzky won it Five times. He's only the ninth player to win the Hart Trophy three or more times in his career. Wayne Gretzky, of course, won it nine times. God knows if anybody will ever break that record, much like any other record Gretzky has broken. Gordie Howe won it six times. Eddie Shore won it four times. Howie Morenz, Bobby Orr, Bobby Clark, Mario Lemieux, and Alexander Ovechkin have each won it three times, in addition to Connor McDavid. Only Gretzky, Orr, Clark, and Ovechkin had also won three times in their first eight seasons. And Connor McDavid, really the best player in this league since he entered it, maybe the best player in this league. I had had a friend who said he very well could be the best player in this league in the last 15 years, maybe even the best player since... Since Mario Lemieux, I mean, it's and it's quite possibly true. It's remarkable, even for a guy who has not played in a Stanley Cup final yet. His numbers are so staggering, and he's been so good, particularly offensively, but so good that uh, there there are not many arguments against him. And another thing, it shows how uh, nice a guy he is. He was surprised on stage by the family of uh, late superfan Ben Stelter, who. Unfortunately, passed away last year of brain cancer at age six, but had genuinely developed a, b- a bond with McDavid and with the Oilers organization. And one thing that I was, I didn't, I did not watch much of the of the awards ceremony. I only really caught the last two awards or so. Before McDavid even knew the family was there, he had actually mentioned the Ben Stelter Fund as his charity of choice, because Paul Bissonette was very, had been talking about his hot tub and how if Connor McDavid mentioned the the hot tub in his Hart Trophy speech, that he would match a donation for the charity of his choice. And McDavid pretty much instinctively said the Ben Stelter Fund. And so the, apparently the, the, the family was really going wild backstage hearing about that and that was a lovely, lovely thing to hear, and so of course, and of course, he did mention the hot tub. But just a a class move by the face of the league now, the face of the league, and just an incredible, incredible talent. Jim Montgomery won the Jack Adams Award this year as the league's best coach after leading the Bruins to the most wins and points in a season in NHL history. I know, yes, you can say, oh, they got ousted in the first round, but this is a regular season award. And the fact is, Jim Montgomery is a good coach. He's a respected coach in this league. And he 
finished with the most wins and points in a season in league history in his first year with this organization. Even if they got ousted in the first round, it's a regular season award, and it is a huge accomplishment. Winning the Cup is... It, it is perhaps the most important thing besides... Well, from a, at least on paper, it's the most important thing, but it is not everything. And uh, you know, we'll, we'll we'll see what Montgomery can do. He'd also do that with kind of an, in many ways an aging group of guys as well. So for all that Bruce Cassidy did in Vegas, and I, well, I think it was unfair that he was let go of his job, and I think this this cup this cup win kind of proves that. Jim Montgomery did a phenomenal job this year, and this was well-deserved. In addition, Linus Allmark won the Vezina Trophy after winning the quote-unquote Triple Crown, tied for the league lead in wins, led the league in goals against and save percentage, and I think it's vindication for him that he did more than just play behind a solid team. Now, would he have had the opportunity to win this award in a in a Buffalo uniform? I mean, I, I couldn't tell you that for sure, but this is really huge for a guy that was kind of a backup or and di- did not play for especially contending organizations. This guy had a phenomenal year. He, you know, before this year, you could argue he wasn't the best, even the best goaltender on his team. You have a great goaltender in Jeremy Swayman for Boston. And Lord knows what the future is going to be for either of these guys. But that is a huge achievement for Olmark who also think that the two previous... I was stunned there are only two Swedes have won the award in the past. Henrik Lundqvist was one of them, and of course it was huge because he just went into the Hall of Fame. And the other one was Pelle Lindbergh of the Philadelphia Flyers. So uh, just a, a great achievement for Swedish goaltending and, and for, for the Boston Bruins. And again, a, a huge night for the Boston Bruins. Patrice Bergeron who was probably already established as the best defensive forward in the history of the sport, if not any other, extends his record with his sixth Selkie Trophy win. And if he... I mean, there are rumors he may retire. or rumors that he will retire. If he does, I mean, he's... He's the best. It's, it's much like, you know, any of Gretzky's records from a, from a defensive forward standpoint there will probably be no one better. It's absolutely true. Andrzej Kopitar wins the Lady Bing for gentlemanly conduct. Incredibly skilled player, in many ways undervalued over his years. Future Hall of Famer. And with the possible exception of Jonathan Quick, or maybe Drew Dowdy, I don't know, just just a huge part, probably the most important forward for those Kings Stanley Cup teams as he continues into a new generation. Matty Beneers, who was maybe the, the most important player for the Kraken in total, wins the Calder Trophy as Rookie of the Year with 57 points. Chris Letang, a guy who's overcome so much, returned from a stroke for the second time and rightfully won the Masterton Trophy this season. Okay, well, enough about hockey, as we still have much more to discuss. Now, I won't go too in-depth with it, but the NBA draft, of course, took place this week. The San Antonio Spurs select Victor Wembanyama with the number one overall pick. Obviously, you can't throw a baseball, but this is still a significant move. It's probably the biggest. It's probably the biggest draft pick that they have had since Tim Duncan was selected number one overall in 1997. Wembanyama has gotten comparisons, strong comparisons to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Wilt Chamberlain, who, in my opinion, are probably the two best players not named Michael Jordan. He's been compared defensively to Rudy Gobert. He's been compared in terms of shooting to Christoph Porzingis, who we'll also talk about in a moment. He is does have comparisons to Dirk Nowitzki's he says he models his game after Kevin Durant and Giannis Antetokounmpo, which would make sense considering those are two kind of, I would say Kevin Durant more so is more similar to Wembenyama in that he's more lanky, I would say. Giannis is a little more muscular, but a guy who can kind of do it all. That's really what we saw in what we've seen with Nikola Jokic 
It's a guy the Spurs really need. And it, it's going to be interesting to see what he can do. I think his his size, I think, is a question mark. I, th- I think he'll need to put on some muscle. I don't know. From what, from what I've seen, he might be a little... I mean, 7 5 two, ten. I think that's a little too lanky, a little too kind of skinny, I suppose, for someone that height. But there is a big potential ceiling for him. He's only 19. It's going to take a couple of years for him to develop. And, you know, it's going to be tough for him, for him, I think, to carry a team. But if Kevin Durant, who might actually be 7 feet, is has been able to play a, a relatively healthy career and play at that level and not even be someone who can carry up the ball and, and play more in the post at, at times, then maybe this guy can do that too. It's uh, He has a lot of the positives of Jokic or of Nowitzki, Wilt, Kareem, Giannis, KD, but will... You're going to see what he can do. And, I, you know, you would think it, it's also interesting that he's French, but he speaks fluent English. And this is just kind of an intangible, an off-floor intangible type thing. But this is interesting. And, and then you also factor in that the Spurs have, I don't know if he's currently an advisor or anything like that, but the Spurs had maybe the best you could probably argue the best French player ever in Tony Parker. And so that has to be, I mean, there has to be something significant there. So a a big, it's huge for them, obviously. The Knicks signed Jacob Toppin of Kentucky forward to a two-way deal. See if he goes to Westchester or if he stays with the Knicks, and we'll see what the depth is, what the situation is with Randall. Obviously, it's going to be big for Obi. See what happens. Celtics receive Kristaps Porzingis from the Wizards. This is a three-way deal. The Wizards trade Porzingis to the Celtics. The Celtics also get the number 25 pick from Memphis, and they get a first-rounder next year. The Grizzlies receive Marcus Smart, who, I mean, you want to add on to the crazy of Ja Morant. Sure, go ahead. But Smart, obviously, is a great two-way player and one of the best defensive players of his generation. The Wizards received Tyus Jones from Memphis. They also get Danilo Gallinari, Mike Muscala, and the number 35 pick this season from Boston. In addition, the Wizards, and another crazy deal, the Suns get Bradley Beal, who is far away the highlight of this deal, Jordan Goodwin and Isaiah Todd. The Wizards get Chris Paul, not for long, Landry Shamet and... Bilal Koulibaly, the number seven overall pick. They get him from the Pacers. They get, in addition, a first-round pick swap next year, a second-rounder next year, a second-rounder in 2025, a pick swap in the first round in 2026, a second-rounder in 2026, a second-rounder in 2027, a first-round pick swap in 2028, a second-rounder in 2028, a first-round pick swap in 2030, a second-rounder in 2030. The Pacers, after all of that, the Pacers get Jairus Walker, who's the number eight pick from the Wizards, and a future second rounder each from Washington and Phoenix. I don't know how much better Bradley Beal is really going to make the Suns, especially when you lose somebody, you give up somebody as talented and as brilliant a playmaker as Chris Paul is, and as someone who has more playoff experience that might send the Suns, this might, I don't know, in, in an overall, in a championship standpoint, that might actually set them back. And then, uh, well, let me finish that, actually. Chris Paul, again, traded to from the Wizards to Golden State before he could even put on the uniform. Jordan Poole traded to Washington. So, I mean, at the end of all this, the Wizards have a team that could be a playoff contender this year. Tyus Jones, Danilo Gallinari, Mike Muscala, number 35 pick this year, and Chris Paul, very well could be a playoff team, and then you throw a ridiculous amount of draft picks their way, 
I mean, the Wizards are now set up the way OKC was. You see what they'll do with it. I'll also see what the pick swaps really do over the next seven years, which is remarkable. It's remarkable that the NBA would even let them trade for that much. The Celtics with Porzingis, I don't really know how he's going to fit in there. I don't understand trading away Marcus Smart. I think the Celtics have really done a lot of things right. And I don't, I don't know, Porzingis doesn't seem like the most reliable player. I think they're really mortgaging their future. Marcus Smart is a guy who, if the Grizzlies, who could make a huge difference for the Grizzlies and really put them over the top, maybe put them in the NBA Finals when you you add him to a Ja Morant and to Jaron Jackson Jr., to, to that whole team. The Wizards... I don't know. I don't, I don't know if the Suns are going to be that good necessarily. But also, you put Chris Paul in a Warriors uniform, and this—I mean—it kind of shortens their window. But I think, in terms of age, it kind of shortens their championship window because Jordan Poole was a guy who was really stepping up in off the bench. For Steph Curry, but he's going to get he's going to get a lot more playing time in Washington, which is a good thing for him. But Chris Paul, that this is a win now move for Golden State. It's a win now move for Phoenix, and it's probably a win now move for the Celtics and for the Grizzlies. Wizards, obviously, not so much. They're building for the future, but this is a team that could be a playoff team. And lastly, the Hawks trade John Collins to Utah. For Rudy Gay and a second rounder, the Hawks trade away probably their core and probably their best big man. And so that's a big deal for Utah to get a younger guy. They get they get youth more so, and the Hawks do get a good veteran presence in Rudy Gay and getting a, a second round pick. That's not a bad deal for them. As we just move on here, the the Mets and the Phillies, moving on to baseball for a moment, Mets and the Phillies will play a two-game series in London in 2024. It'll be June 8th and 9th in London Stadium. I think it's rather appropriate. You already had the Yankees in Boston. Why not play maybe the other biggest rivalry on the flip side of New York City, possible exception being Mets-Braves. And what also will be interesting is that you can really play the American card when you have the the colonial, you know, revolutionary card when you have New York and Boston playing in London and now you have New York and Philadelphia playing in London. The Mets who have been a mess as of late. Steve Cohen, of course, had the press conference today. He's pretty much threatening that if the Mets don't clean up by the de- if the Mets don't pick up their act by the deadline, he will clean house. The Mets trade Eduardo Escobar to the Angels in exchange for minor league right-handed pitchers Coleman Crow and Landon Marceau, uh, and cash consideration. They are ranked 19th and 20th, respectively, in the Angels' system. Escobar was hitting only 236 with four home runs at the time of the trade. He was a fan favorite last year, but unfortunately for him, he has lost out on much of his playing time at third base to Brett Beatty. It was a move that made sense for the Mets. They get something out of it. They kind of sold low. This is something I was really passionate about, and that's that the commissioner, Rob Manfred, admitted to Time Magazine this week that granting the Astros immunity was, quote, maybe not my best decision, unquote. Although this is an obvious understatement, I will give Rob Manfred a ton of credit for owning up to his mistake. Now, I've said time and again, and I haven't really said it in my own words necessarily, but it's true. I think the Astros never really paid the pl- price because the players were not punished, nor did they have their title revoked. One or the other should have happened. I honestly think more likely if you were only going to pick one, the, the second should have happened. I don't care if it's unprecedented in professional sports. I think that's what should have happened. I think it's the one time. Look, there are teams where I've said, oh, if, if it's a bad call, I've said this in multiple sports, where if it's a bad call or or a likelihood, or in baseball in particular, if there was a likelihood that a player was using, a key player was using steroids that they would not have won without that person, that I could kind of discount 
a handful of teams, but this is the worst case of cheating in the history of sports, in my opinion, because it was a group effort. It was a an effort of the entire lineup. As good as that lineup is, obviously there there's good players in that lineup, and you have to make contact, but if you know what pitch it is, it's a disgrace to the game, and it's a disgrace to sports in general. And no example was set because they got to keep their championship, and nobody missed a game, and the league protected them when guys tried to throw at them. And, you know, eye for an eye, but they never paid the price. They never paid the price. It doesn't matter how many people booed them. This was pure injustice. Now, there are far thir- far worse things in the world, and ultimately it is just a game, but it is true. They never paid the price. Whereas you look at the, the Black Sox scandal, and there are probably a couple of players in that scandal who were banned for life who were innocent. And not to mention, they didn't cheat to win. They lost on purpose which I don't think is as bad a punishment, especially uh, is as bad a crime, especially when you consider that Charlie Comiskey was not paying them nearly enough for how good they were. And uh, not that's an excuse whatsoever. But, uh, you know, I, I will, g- as, as poor a job I thought Rob Manfred did with this, I give him a ton of credit for owning up to making a mistake. And I think he did have the best of intentions because he probably wanted to do it, but he also probably had the Players Association on his back. My counter-argument to that is so many players on other teams, on all other 29 teams, were openly saying, including Mike Fires, were calling out for punishment. Mike Fires, everybody forget, Mike Fires was the one who outed them in the first place. But I really give him a ton of credit and I I think I can give him my um, uh, respect for owning up to his mistake and it, it was I, I can only imagine what the, that situation must have, must have actually been like to be be in charge during that situation not really even really be in charge the players association was in charge but also, I will also acknowledge, though, that I, I hope we that though I hope we can move forward because of this, just kind of move past it. Acknowledging that it was a grave mistake could unfortunately make the pushback grow even worse. The pushback from fans, pushback from other players. I, I don't know. It's possible. Moving on, a couple more things. Uh, for one thing, the Jets of course, had made a signing at safety, and this was probably expected, but Chuck Clark tore his ACL. He will miss the season. Jets needed some help in the secondary. They did make some moves to to aid them in that. Also in the AFC East, the Buffalo Bills signed Sean McDermott, their head coach, and GM Brandon Bean to contract extensions through the 2027 season. Leaves the window open. It's... A Buffalo team that now is to compete not only with Kansas City, but with Cincinnati, clearly. But this is an investment. This is a five-year investment. Got to get this done. This is the best opportunity Buffalo has had in over a quarter century to win the Super Bowl. It's the best team they have had since then. They have a generational talent in Josh Allen. Great receiving core. Their defense is strong. And... You know, it's a Buffalo organization and a Buffalo fan base that has suffered more than any other. The city of Buffalo, the tied, essentially, in essence, tied for the longest drought with San Diego in terms of overall professional championships in the major four sports. But again, on average, it's probably dip, it's probably more difficult to live in Buffalo than it is to live in San Diego, as as nice as that city is. And then we close with some really unfortunate news, and that is that former quarterback Ryan Mallett passed away this week at the age of 35 in an apparent drowning accident in Destin, Florida. Apparently several people got caught near a sandbar, and Mallett just did not make it out alive. He, of course, played at the University of Arkansas, 
in his home state before working primarily as a backup for seven seasons in the NFL. He played with the New England Patriots, the Houston Texans, the Baltimore Ravens, won an AFC title with the Patriots in his rookie season in 2011, received a lot of love via social media after his passing from Bill Belichick, Tom Brady, J.J. Watt, who I did not receive, I did not realize actually was the receiver of his first ever touchdown pass in the NFL, and John Harbaugh, among others. He had finished his first season as head coach at Whitehall High School in Arkansas. That was his second high school head coaching job. And uh, just terrible to hear a really unfortunate timing, a guy with a lot more still to do in his life. And we wish all those involved, anyone who knew him, the very best. That does it for us this week. Thank you so much for your time, your appreciation. I certainly appreciate you as we try to move on to the next chapter here of Sports in the Waiting Room.